Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's text is from Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for Yahweh God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Medallium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. I mentioned it at the end of yesterday's reading, the idea that really chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 serve as a bridge between the two chapters, between 1 and 2. 
verses 1 through 3 very easily could go on the end of chapter 1 here as they're talking about the creation week. And then chapter 2 verse 4 is going to really give us that hinge point between the two chapters. The chapter breaks, by the way, are a much later invention that was added to the Bible just to help us be able to understand where we were talking about together if we you know, wanted to make a reference to some point in Scripture, rather than just say, do you remember that time where God said this? You can actually point to something like oh, John chapter 14, and that makes it so much easier to, to be on the same page. But nonetheless, <laughs> they're not always in the best spots. All right, so today as we look at this then, God creates the earth in six days. I mentioned we'd talk a little bit more about evolution. The world came about in six days. Not millions of years or billions of years. Six days. There was evening and there was morning is the way it's phrased. And then God rested. The seventh day. And he sets this very specifically as a pattern for us to follow. Six days to work, one day to rest. Six days to work, one day to rest. We call it a week, seven days. Not millions of years, not billions of years again. So death is the primary argument that I made yesterday. The death is the enemy, the intruder, and evolution posits the opposite. But the idea that God could simply speak everything into existence, that wondrous power of his is also undercut. The word of God is undercut and denied, doubted entirely, because it very straightforwardly gives this a six-day, seven-day week. So, a lot to this conversation, but those are some points to consider and ponder. So, God rested on the seventh day. Maybe a family conversation. Did God need to rest? The answer to that ends up being no. God is all-powerful. God does not exhaust. He wasn't out of steam at the end of a, a hard work week. But he sets a pattern for us that we would see that he rested so it is good for rest for his creation. We would rest. That we would be able in our lives to trust that if we take a day off, God can keep all of this that he made spinning. He can keep it going. He'll provide for us. Which Exodus 16, the man in the wilderness, very specifically displays that very thing to his people. It also, though, foreshadows the perfect rest of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in the tomb. As that Sabbath day that week, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, he was in the tomb, his body resting from the suffering that he had endured on the day prior. For the forgiveness of all of our sins, he bled and died. So, God calls that seventh day holy. That here means set apart. It's supposed to be different, unique from all the others. And as Christians even today, we should treat the things of God holy and separate. We don't observe a literal 24-hour day of rest, although there's still great benefit to that, physically and spiritually. So our body needs rest and our 
our burdens of grief from our sin needs to be removed, which is why Luther so quickly connects the Sabbath to the idea of going to worship. What's more restful than having our sins forgiven, our guilt taken away? Again, verse 4 serves as the hinge. And so these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. The generations word is going to appear ten times in the book. It's a way Moses will keep us tracking with what's going on. Uh, The first five are historical, uh, just the greater history of God's people. And then you get into the, the latter five being connected to the patriarchs. As we think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you also have Jacob's brother Esau, for example. Now, we're going to get a, another view of creation here in chapter 2. This is not an error to repeat it, and it will sound a little different. There's a reason for that. But this is something that gets attacked as a, a contradiction by atheists and, and people that despise God's word today. There's no trouble here. There's no issue with this. If you've ever watched a movie where it starts with a, a view of Earth, or perhaps another planet from outer space, and then it it zooms in to the place, to the person, the family, whoever you're going to be focusing on, that's the, the picture here. Genesis 1 is the big picture view from God's perspective of how he created the Earth. Genesis 2 zooms that in, it transitions, it moves in to look at things from man's perspective, and it stays there. The rest of Scripture is going to be that relationship, that connection between God and men as he works, he brings about his plan of salvation for us from our sin. Part of what what shows this transition is that the divine name, Yahweh, is going to show up for the first time in Scripture right here in verse 4. In the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heaven. Yahweh is the name that God gave us to call him by. Wasn't his name for himself. That was Ehweh, I am, Yahweh, he is. We speak his name, we confess our faith. So Moses making that transition perhaps most clear um, by using the divine name he is in the text. We do see that it hadn't rained yet, so the plants weren't, weren't growing in the garden. However, there was a mist watering the plants from underneath the ground. We talked about the bubble theory a little bit yesterday. This might play into that again. No rain mentioned in Scripture until you get to Genesis 6. Instead, we have a mist that comes up from the ground and was capable of watering his creation. And instead of remaining a a mist that gives water to the earth from below all the years of creation, when you come to the flood, not only do the floodgates of the heavens open, but also all of the, the great springs from beneath burst forth, and together those sources of water flood the earth. And unfortunately, uh, this makes it a little harder, right? We think of Adam's work in the garden. Creation's perfect. He doesn't even he doesn't even have to water the plants. God does that. How easy, how gentle, how how even perhaps we might say restful Adam's work of caring for the plants and the animals may have been. 
God then creates Adam from the dust. This is the first thing mentioned in Scripture to not be made by simply being spoken by God, although in verse 19 we'll see that he also made the beasts of the field that way. So God forms him like a, oh, you could do this as a family devotion, right? Make a, make a person out of Play-Doh or something, clay or whatever you've got on hand. Um, and this is what the Lord did. He made us. He formed us. And then he breathed the breath of life into us. He made Adam a living being. What an incredible moment that that is, that breath of life. Then he places him in the Garden of Eden, which is described as being to the east. Eden is uh, basically the Hebrew for paradise. He places him in the east there. That's from Moses' perspective. As Moses writes this, he's writing it from, well, not quite the promised land, but coming up out of Egypt and, and doing the wandering in the wilderness there. So from his perspective, yeah, Garden of Eden is to the east, as we would put it. Around the area of modern-day Iraq, the intersection point of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers uh, from verse 14, which we'll cover in just a moment. So he always made this garden. He puts Adam there to work it and keep it for him, which we'll see in the text as well. God makes the plants grow, including we've got the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, both in the midst of the garden. Why did God create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? We don't know. To be quite honest, we don't know. And we have to be careful when we don't know that we don't just start making stuff up and try to associate to God or to Scripture things that God himself has not said. We can take guesses. That's fine. It's fine to talk about the possibilities. But to acknowledge this, the Scriptures simply don't tell us. So is it a reasonable, educated guess to say that God did not want us to be automated robots? That he actually wanted us to remain in that relationship with him and gave us the opportunity to leave if we wanted? I suppose that seems the most likely, but I don't know it for sure. So the river flows out of Eden and divides then into four rivers. We don't know the first two. The Pishon and the Gihon are unknown to us. Havilah as a land is unknown to us, although well known for gold, um, that perhaps would be part of the Arabian Peninsula, as Ophir, later in scripture, is going to be known for its gold, as it borders the eastern edge of the Red Sea. And this is something that King Solomon will be interested in. He'll send people down to work in Ophir and bring gold back for his kingdom. Could be. I say this because as well, Bedellium is known to be in that Arabian Peninsula also, and it's like a yellowish resin kind of material. So, maybe. Now, then you get the Gahon. This is not the same as the Gahon Spring of water that's by Jerusalem later on in history, uh, but again, its own river that flows through the land of Cush, which is to the west of the Red Sea on well, south of Egypt. The third and the fourth rivers we know, the Tigris and the Euphrates. We still have these two. Now you've got the flood, and we've got that 7,000 years of potential changes of, of how the river might cut its course. So it makes it impossible to know exactly where these rivers were located originally. 
But we should bear in mind that Moses is writing this post-flood. And so as he introduces people to this idea of these two rivers, it is the same two rivers because they know these. He's not just introducing them to new rivers they've never heard of. These are rivers they have. In fact, the Euphrates is so commonly known, it's just called the river. Oftentimes, as it comes up in scripture and in English translations, they put the word Euphrates in so that you know what's being talked about. Yahweh God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 28 already as well. And then he gives man the instruction to eat. He can eat of anything green, basically, any tree of the garden and the fruit on them. But he can't eat from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Hold on to that note, because that's going to be the devil's temptation point as he works with them in chapter 3 tomorrow. For now, simply recognize perhaps that Adam wouldn't have had a concept of death at this point. All right. Now, God notes for the first time that something is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. We're not made to be alone. That's a pretty simple statement. And loneliness is an epidemic among us today. Very dangerous. Instead, God is going to make a helper fit for him, or in the Hebrew, literally, according to his opposite. They fit together. I mean, It's a bit sexual, but you get the point. Now, before he does that, he brings the other animals that he's created, the other land animals, and he brings them before Adam as well as the birds of the heavens and lets Adam name them. He involves Adam in the role of creation. Just as we saw in chapter 1, God made Adam in his image. We talked about that as being functional, joining God in what he does, having dominion, caring for his creation. Also, the names. God named things in chapter 1. He named it night. He named it day, and so forth. And earth, seas, all those kinds of things. Now, Adam gets to name animals. We don't know what language Adam spoke, so unfortunately, we can't know what he called the animals. That would be fun if we did. But we don't know if he spoke Hebrew. We don't even know, perhaps, Tower of Babel-wise, the original language that was spoken in creation might not even exist any longer. We just don't know. So Adam named them all, but for Adam there was not found a helper according to his opposite. So Yahweh caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. This is a rare word in scripture, uh, deep sleep. It is not a normal sleep. It's not even, as we might even talk about it medically today, like, putting someone into an anesthetic slumber for a surgery. Same kind of idea, perhaps, but this is a deeper sleep than that. Um, It can be used positively in this sense, as well as Genesis 15, where God does this to Abraham. It is a supernatural sleep, but it can also be used negatively in Scripture a couple of the times that it shows up. So God takes a rib from Adam's side, and from that rib then he uses that as the starting point from which he fashions a wife, a woman, Eve, and he brings her to the man. 
Notice that picture. I love that image when it comes to our traditional images of weddings today, that the father will walk his daughter, the bride, down the aisle, and he will take her hand and place it into the hand of her her groom. And so it is that God does with Eve. He creates her, and as her father, he now brings her to her groom, and he gives her to him. A fantastic picture in, in our weddings today. Adam's response is hilarious. This at last, finally, now is bone of my bones. He's been alive for what? A few hours? We know from chapter one they were both created on the same day. This at last, it speaks to the joy that man takes in his bride. It speaks to the gift that she is to him. He rejoices. This is good. He recognizes she has come from him, and because she has come from him, so he calls her. Woman and man, I really appreciate that in English the word play still works. You can see the word man right there in the word woman. In Hebrew, now the the word for man is ish, and the word for woman simply is the feminine form of it. It adds an ah ending to it. It does shorten the first vowel, so it's isha, but it's the same letters, um, very similar, and so you can see that connection between man and woman, and again, works in English too. I, I love it when word plays come through. They usually don't, including Eve's name in the next chapter, but I'll tell you that tomorrow. All right, verse 24 and 25. Verse 24 is going to be one of the most commonly cited Old Testament passages in the New Testament. Jesus says it. Paul will use it. Um, it's the picture of marriage. A man will leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. I believe the King James says cleave to his wife, uh, be united, cling. The Hebrew word there is cling or stick to. It's it's like glue. You come together and you can't be undone. Uh, A wonderful picture that that is. The question becomes, is this a three-step process or two? We can't solve that one today, but... Leaving his father and mother is the first step. Holding fast to his wife, clinging, cleaving, is marriage. And they shall become one flesh is sex. And the question is, are two and three separate, marriage and sex, or are they the same? There are spots, certainly in Scripture, where they're the same. When Rebecca is brought and she meets, meets Isaac for the first time, he takes her into his mother's tent and she becomes his wife. It's not hard to figure that one out. So... That's the, the, the sticky part, um, but again, a beautiful description of marriage that we get in this section, including verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You can ask your children, why not? Why weren't they ashamed? Why didn't they mind being naked? And the answer to that is they weren't focused on themselves. Adam was not made to care for Adam. He was made to care for Eve and the creation. Eve was not made to care for Eve. She was made to care for Adam and the creation. This only changes when sin enters creation in chapter 3 tomorrow. And we'll cover that again. Let us praise the Word incarnate, Christ who See